Hello and welcome to the Love History Podcast, where we explore what happens when an LGBTQ plus historian and a mudlark chat to their friends about a shared love of history. I'm Mock O'Keefe, and you can find me on TikTok, on Instagram and YouTube as Gay Aristo. And I'm Marie-Louise Plum, and you can find me on all the socials as Old Father Thames. Now, in this podcast, we chat to fellow history lovers, people working in history, and even some people who are making history themselves. Oh, yes, we do indeed. So sit back, relax, make your beverage of choice, and welcome to the Love History Podcast. And do remember to subscribe and follow us to make sure you hear all of the episodes in Series 1. So, Marie, I've got a question for you before we have our interview. Historically speaking, what have you been up to? Okay, it's a sidestep from mudlarking, but it's still history and social history. I've been researching my Italian family who, in the Second World War, uh, moved to the Italian annexed Libya and under Mussolini. And I've been researching exactly what kind of life they were living and what they were up to while they were there. Oh, wow. I bet that's fascinating. Mm. And what about you? What have you been up to? Oh, I've been under I've been under a deadline. So, as you know, I'm doing a PhD in the country house as a place of refuge for LGBTQ plus people. And I have a supervisory meeting next week with the university. So I've had to write six and a half thousand words of my draft introduction and then a thousand words on my plan for research for the next four years. So I have sent it off. I can have a sigh of relief and then next Thursday I have a meeting with my supervisor and uh, the professor and they'll let me know what they think so wish me luck. Good luck and my goodness me that is an awful lot to do but you know a wonderful thing so good luck. <laughs> I'm sure you'll handle it marvellously. So now before we get into our interview with Zach Pinsent, we have had a question sent in to us. So and I should say if anyone else would like to send us a question, please email us at lovehistorypodcast at gmail.com. So Mock, are you ready? I have a question here from Charles. Okay. So Charles is an American and he says, as an American, I always start at the word fag, I bridle at that word, being used to describe a cigarette. How do you feel about words like fag being used in common parlance? Oh, Charles, that's a very interesting question and quite topical. I've been talking a lot about this on the Gay Aristo socials and had lots of debate with people. I don't personally like or use the word fag because it hasn't been reclaimed by the LGBTQ plus or queer community. Let me explain. So I like the word queer because like fag, queer was used originally as hate speech, as a way of criticizing, as a way of othering people that we would now consider part of the LGBTQ plus community. But in the 1980s and the 1990s, through activism, particularly through Queer Nation in New York, the community started to claim back that word and use it to describe themselves. The idea being that if you took the power out of the oppressor's ability to criticize you by using the word yourself, they no longer had the power over you. So I proudly call myself queer, um, using the language that was used to criticize me at school, but maybe it's a cultural thing. I didn't grow up in the US. I don't necessarily know that word. It hasn't been used against me in the UK and I don't feel it's been reclaimed mm. by the community. So I would say I'm more queer than fag, 
But thank you very much for the question. Thanks, Charles. Anyway, enough, enough about me and my queerness. We have a very exciting show for you today. So we sat down with Zach Pinsent, who is, gosh, what is he? He's a social media phenomena, absolutely all over socials, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. He is a tailor and he is a researcher of historical clothing. And he himself has dressed in period clothes since he was 14 years old. That is fascinating. So let's have a listen to our interview with Zach and then you and I will come back and we'll chat about what we've learned. So hello, Zach. Very nice to see you today. Hello there. How are you? But now for those maybe one or two people left on the planet, uh, particularly on social media, who don't know who you are at Pincent Tailoring. Do you want to just introduce yourself and um, explain what is unique about you? Well, uh, my name is Zach Pincent. Uh, on social media, I'm Pincent Tailoring. And well, basically, uh, I wear Regency and Georgian clothing all the time, uh, as well as I obviously make it. Uh, all from scratch using period materials um, and drafting systems, as well as making for clients as well. And, you know, I've kind of been just doing that as my thing. And it appears that people on social media rather like that. So fine, here we are. <laughs> yeah, excellent. I mean, you do have an incredible following on social media uh, as you dress in historical clothes. What do you think it is about that, that historical wardrobe that is so fascinating for people? I think it's twofold, especially. One, there's the um, sort of novelty of seeing someone in period clothing in a non-film uh, context, as in just an ordinary person doing it. But I think one of the biggest things that gets people um, and that I've really come across in terms of oh, that's why people follow me. It's simply because I'm doing what I like doing and doing what I love. Um, and I'm dressing alternatively, which is a huge thing anyway, but it's certainly getting traction at the moment about people really embracing their own style. And I've been doing, doing it and embracing my own style for years. So it's quite a nice sort of way that people are um, sort of exploring identity through fashion. I love that idea of exploring your identity through fashion. And you mentioned there that you've been doing it for years. So you're sitting here tonight <clears throat> in a red waistcoat. You're wearing a rather marvellous, I'll probably get this wrong, a rather marvellous cravat. Is that what, what is it exactly? It's a white, for those of again who aren't watching this on YouTube, it's white, it's ruffled, it's marvellous, it's right up to your chin. And you're wearing a, a, a white tunic or shirt. So the shirt itself uh, has these sort of frills attached to it. Um, it's known as a frilled shirt. And then the cravat is a starched white linen. Uh, and that's around the, uh, around the collar of the shirt. And the shirt collar itself is slightly starched as well. That sort of help keeps it in place. Um, and, and I think one of the misconceptions is that people look at it and think, oh, isn't it tight or uncomfortable? And it's like, well, no. But also, I I have a very long neck, so so it may look like it's choking, but but I've got plenty of wiggle room, uh, so so it's quite interesting. But it for, for someone with a shorter neck or something, um, the style would look slightly different for, on on different people. Um, it it's not like everyone in the early nineteenth century was forcing themselves to look super fashionable, um, it, because that doesn't even happen now. So. Um, 
so it's interesting. You you sort of show people what historical clothing was like. Um, I'm you know, there's no point me trying to show on myself what historical clothing would be like for someone of a different body type, because I'm not going to display that very well, which is why I do that, obviously, with my clients who are a huge range of body types, because historically, all types of body types have always existed. Uh, so people say, oh, you know, that outfit, I don't really have the figure for it. It's like, mm, yes, you do. Um, just slightly different style here or there. You know, it's like with um, modern suits and things. There are particular cuts and drapes which work for different people. Um, you wouldn't be able to put, um, you know, uh, a modern gym going guy into a slim fit Italian three piece suit. Uh, so, you know, things are made for different people. Um, and after all, the clothes should fit you. You shouldn't try and fit the clothes. That's so interesting because, you know, you you kind of use what you've got and, and work with it in, in the modern day, don't you? You're sort of conscious of what you're wearing. You work to your strengths, don't you? And it's so interesting that two, three hundred years ago, people were doing the same thing. Oh, completely, completely. Um, you, you have it all through fashion history um, where you have particular people who... Well, uh, in the 14th century, one of the mistresses of, I believe, a French king or, or an English king, can't recall, um, she uh, she had one breast that she particularly preferred over the other, and, and, and it was particularly gorgeous and fashionable. So she had all of her gowns cut to expose that breast, which I think is hilarious and fantastic and very much like... Um, uh, very much like a Kim Kardashian move in terms of having oh, everything yeah. tailored to sort of show off particular aspects. Um, and, and clothing has always worked uh, in, in that way, as in you've got what nature has given you. And then if the fashion is for like a, you know, larger sleeves or a smaller waist or something, then then you work around that. Uh, but but really, um, fashion overall, it's not it's not. Um, it doesn't exclude people. People exclude people. Um, fashion doesn't, uh, which which is quite interesting when you then think of things historically, because, of course, a lot of the things that survive are, are quite small. And the reason for that uh, is, one, it's museum bias. Museums didn't want to buy up all the larger stuff because then they'd have to get different mannequins for things and all of that. So these things languished and weren't saved. But also, if a garment is of a larger size, you can use the material for something else. So things can be chopped up and used for various different things. And a smaller gown, there isn't the same amount of material to necessarily be used for a different fashion. But also, there's that thing, especially with women's wear, where you will save your wedding dress, your debutante dress. You know, it's it, it's for best. It's my special one. I'll just keep it. Um, and it sort of becomes a memory piece as opposed to anything you might necessarily wear again. Um, but then again, that does depend on class, um, because, of course, the l low middle class and lower classes and everything, they'd wear things until they fell apart. The things that survive mm -hmm. are the fancy ball gowns and things like that, um, or, or, or things that have just slipped through the net of, you know, time eff effectively. So you're talking about... <clears throat> You then, with your swan Nike neck, all relaxed, and you're telling me that is your Friday night tracksuit look. Um, how on earth did you go from, I'm assuming at one point, wearing regular modern clothes, to dressing in 
period dress, I mean, I think it's Georgian what you're wearing now, on a Friday night. What was the transition? How did it start? When you think about it, every kid loves dressing up. And my parents just never really told me to stop. Now I went through a period at school of kind of going, oh, I can't do that. And there was a the whole school uniform thing as well. So, so I did what I could. But then we, you, you know, I'd always loved dressing up all, all the time as much as I could. But, you know, it did become difficult. And it's that thing of there were some vintage pieces. I tried to sort of find things, but it was hard to find my sort of hook. Um, you know, I'd wear sort of um, interesting sort of, very early on sort of steampunk type stuff but i wasn't really in love with it it was just what was available and then when i was 14 we were moving house and i found my great great grandfather's three-piece suits in the loft and they perfect condition and they fitted me like a glove so i was like excellent i've got my base um which was like a couple pair of trousers a couple of waistcoats and a couple of jackets and they fitted me perfectly. And I was like, okay, great. So then I could go to charity shops, find a waistcoat, add that to that, you know, and change the jackets around. So all of a sudden I was building, in effect, a capsule wardrobe. And then through buying more vintage, um, I then got an idea of shape and style, as well as what I liked and didn't like. But also I had to repair things. So, so a button would fall off or I'd have to repair a lining. And then my favourite waistcoat was just threadbare at that point after having patched it and sewn it, you know, with no instructions, doing it all sort of by myself. And what I did was I just drew round it and tried to recreate it. It was awful, horrendous. <laughs> but the first of many, many things will never be good. You know, if you gave up at the first hurdle, you'd never go anywhere. Good advice. And we all start somewhere. You know, I look at the first pieces that I made, um, even following um, some patterns I'd bought online, and they were dreadful. You know, and I look at, you know, so I was creating things with these patterns, and then I was looking at the things I'd create, but also the photographs and the patterns and thinking, where's the disconnect between that and the original garment type thing? Why, why does this not look like that thing in a museum? And then I had to hit the archives. You know, it was uh, researching at the, um, you know, museums, national archives, um, the internet, local museums, um, all these sorts of interesting collections and just researching, researching and just getting obsessed with it to now where I'm, you know, on a fancy podcast like this. <laughs> what age was that? So I was about 14 uh, when we were moving house. And, and that's kind of up until that point, I'd been you know, at opportunities that always dress differently. But this was kind of my stand of, you know, um, wasn't really that popular at school and everything. And I thought, well, I've really got nothing to lose. I might as well just make myself happy. Um, and so I did. Uh, so 14, I uh, decided to, you know, forego modern dress because it didn't bring me any joy. Um, and after all, if, you know, <sighs> We're, we're, we're sort of these bizarre flesh suits that wander around this little blue marble. And, and if the thing that you put on your flesh suit doesn't make you feel happy, then you're doing something wrong. <laughs> you know, clothes are meant to be fun. Um, you know, if that's how you want to express yourself. I'm not saying that you can't be fun unless you dress differently. It, it's more like that it's an option. You know, and a lot of people don't 
realise it's an option because after all, especially in this country, we grow up wearing school uniforms and then we leave school and yet we still wear a uniform. And it's like, no, 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 no. You know, you don't have to do any of that. You can you can wear what you like and do what you like. You know, you're an adult. You can have cake for breakfast. <laughs> Not advised, but but it's that notion of... It's really interesting where online and when I talk to people, it's almost like they're, pe- people need permission. People need permission to do these things and to, you know, go off that diving board of I'm going to dress for myself or do something different. Do people care? Do you get uh, negative responses or do you get an overall positive response? You know, when you're getting the train from London to Brighton, as I often see you doing on Instagram, how do people respond to you in the buffet carriage? Oh, well, if only there was a buffet carriage. (laughs) People are genuinely interested, curious. um, But a lot of the time, people just keep themselves to themselves. you know, mainly because people have got other things going on and people maybe make assumptions uh, like sometimes, you know, every now and then I'll see like a Twitter thread of, oh, I saw this guy on the bus and it's like, oh, was that Prince Tony? Yeah, it was. I thought maybe he was at a show or something. It's like, no, it's just him all the time. Um, You know, uh, after all, you'll go about their day and not give us like, I'll go about my day and not necessarily give a second thought about people I've just bumped into or whatever. Um, However, I'll be a bizarre sort of anecdote for, for, for these people for I don't know how long. You know, it's that weird thing of um, I, I wonder how many conversations I've come up in in a weird sense uh, in, in, in terms of I'm just going about my day and people have gone, God, there was this weird guy in town. Like, you never know. Um, but after all, and another thing I've sort of come to terms with is the fact that people are wonderful. Like, people are genuinely fantastic. You know, you'll you'll find the odd bad egg, but but I'd say with all the interactions I've had, 99, over 99% uh, are absolutely delightful. Um, you know, I've, uh, I've only really had sort of one problem, which was uh, last year. But apart from that, everything's fine. Yeah, but because people are genuinely nice. And after all, when someone questions you, like, why are you dressed like that? If you simply rebuttal it with, because I want to, there's nothing they can really say against that. I love that. I love that because I want to. Now, you are, I'm wearing a pink jacket. You're wearing a, a red waistcoat. You know, we're quite unusual in terms of modern male dress. It tends to be rather mm. dark and drab in modern day. But historically, men were much more peacocky, weren't they? So can you, any thoughts on that and why perhaps it transitioned away from being flamboyantly colourful to being you know, the dreadful blue gilet. So I think the biggest change comes sort of during the 19th century, where you move away from men in flamboyant waistcoats and everything. Um, but, but Because historically, people full stop wearing far more colour. The past, the Middle Ages, far more colourful than we are today. Um, and, and that's also because everything's mass produced. Um, so it's easier for a company um, to put out five types of brown jacket across 40 different types of location stores because they're more likely to get people to buy it. Um, and then when you have sort of ready to wear come into, come into factor, you then got to think, okay, what's the easiest? What's the cheapest? And that's kind of where it all comes from. This notion of we don't make anything anymore in this country, really, unless you sort of 
you know, um, buy things bespoke or sustainably. Uh, because fast fashion is probably the worst thing um, that, uh, well, one of the worst things we're sort of doing to the environment and to ourselves, because after all, we don't need lots of clothes. But it does mean that the sort of, the vocabulary with which we are able to express ourselves in forms of clothing is reduced because it's, you know, you... And and then you do have the ones that outline there are places with pink suits and things like that. But look at how many of those they're actually making. And then there's the whole thing around toxic masculinity, where if you wear any kind of colour, um, you're not a man or you're gay because that's a bad thing. Um, you know, and and it's all this notion of what rather than um, you you have the American founding fathers. You know, George Washington had several bright pink silk suits. Um, you you have. Uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln with his colourful waistcoats. You know, you have all these macho men of the past that 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 are sort of venerated as these great people, um, where dressing for style was just that. Of I've got style. It was conspicuous consumption. It was look at all the money I've got, but look how stylish I am. You know, clothes are something I kind of think about, but I'm not obsessed with. Um, and then you have that continuing on. I think the last hurrah for men really was probably the 60s and 70s, uh, where you had some just fun fashiony pieces. And then you have the deconstructed suit, which you can have made in China in half a day by a totally by a machine. Right. Okay. So you talk about fast fashion there and kind of throw away. Of course, our ancestors would have reused. I've heard that people would reuse wedding dresses for christening shawls that every man, including, was it George III, could sew? I mean, tell us a little bit around kind of that yep. skill that we've lost and, and you're keeping alive in your tailoring business. Yeah, no, I try to, um, we, which is why with sort of every commission, uh, I'll keep some of the fabric back um, in terms of for repairs or who knows what. But, it, but, but that's common practice in the bespoke world anyway. And, you know, you, you look, for example, at, uh, at King Charles, uh, where he has barber jackets and things which are mainly patch um, now, effectively. Um, but um, And then he's got overcoats with patches on or things that have been redone or recut. And that's the thing. Buy once, buy well, effectively. And if you're going to pay lots of money for something, you know, make it worth it. That, you know, if, if it's not something you love, don't, bother buying it don't just buy it because oh it was a fiver because how is that a fiver you know once you take down the material cost the transport cost because it's traveled internationally at least three times from from production uh from from where the fiver came from to then production to then sewing it to then to you you know um the carbon footprint of a white cotton t-shirt is horrendous you mentioned King Charles there. I know there was a bit of a hoo-ha last year when he had a hole in one of his socks. But what are your thoughts on our King's sortorial fashion, his choices? I think he isn't given enough credit. There's always a lot of talk about all the women in the royal family and what they're doing, or women full stop. I'm thinking, we're not paying any attention to the guys, which is kind of something as a society we don't do. But it's fascinating because if... Kate Middleton, um, sorry, Catherine Middleton would wear uh, any uh, any repeat dress. It'd be like, oh, she's wearing the same thing, and and they'd be like, da 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 da. It's like, well, let's look at everyone else, 
why they're wearing the same thing. And I think let's normalize wearing the same thing. You know, uh, mm. you know, we don't have to constantly be changing things up. Um, and and that's something that you can do personally. You can then build in your own um, style then if you wear key pieces. And that's something which the king does very well. He has pieces um, which, you know, were made from the 60s that he still wears, you know, overcoats and things, um, and even shoes that he continually has um, resold, rehealed. And overall, when you look at it as a cost-per-wear basis, it's it's pennies at this point. Pennies. Because if you think back back in the 60s, he might have paid, gosh, I don't know, but, but say he paid £800, for example, for an overcoat. And then you think, right, that was in the 60s. And he wears it all the time. So po- cost per wear basis, it's probably, you know, two or three quid or something like that. You know, if that. Um, and it's that thing of, you know, I've got pieces which I've repaired and repaired, you know, like bits of lining or re-sewing a button on or whatever, um, or, or occasionally like a patch on the elbow. But you see this in original garments going back hundreds, if not thousands of years, Nowadays, we think we're co- we're too good to have things patched, but there are pieces that belong to George III uh, that that he patched and darned. You know, he darned his own stockings um, because everyone could sew. It was a life skill. It's like everyone can sew, everyone can kind of cook. Nowadays, lots of people can't cook, and barely anyone can sew. So, come the apocalypse, everyone will be naked and hungry. <laughs> Keeping on about King Charles, recently there was a bit of a hoo-ha between the Greek and the British government over the Parthenon stones. A couple of days later, King Charles was seen wearing a tie which had the flag of Greece on it. And historically, that was potentially a political statement. And historically, clothes have been used to make social political statements like Georgina, Duchess of Devonshire, and the, and the feathers in her hair, her support for the, the Prince of Wales. Is, can you tell us a little bit around kind of uh, how clothes have been used to send messages throughout the history? One which I think some people might be familiar with is, of course, the red petticoats of Mary, Queen of Scots. So bright red petticoats, the colour of the martyr. Um, as as she sort of went to the chopping block, her red petticoats and her red dress was exposed and it was the colour of blood, the colour of martyr, you know, Christ's blood and all of that. So clothing has always had symbolism. Um, so, so a phrase I like to say is that um, for hundreds of years, clothing had something to say, but nowadays it's silent. So you go back to the 80s and there was, you know, Vivian Westwood and the punk movement. That clothing said something. It had a meaning behind it. It had symbolism. You go to, um, you know, the 18th century. People showing support for British manufacture by wearing metal buttons made in England as opposed to cloth buttons, which were normal. And then it came to a point where uh, King George III brought in a law uh, which banned cloth-covered buttons, so everyone had to have metal buttons. And, of course, one of the main suppliers of that was in Birmingham. So it helped improve the economy. Uh, and then in the 1660s, you you have uh, King Charles the first or second? No, King Charles the uh, second, the king that brought back partying. That one. Um, he he introduced the waistcoat into men's garments because before then you had doublet and hose, and then a jerkin and hose, and then we have the uh, the Turkish ambassadors come along 
in their sort of garments. And it's like, oh, so then we have the coat, the longer waistcoat and the breeches. And he makes this a rule for court. And then he puts it out as people of certain positions should, ha should have these pieces as well. Because then it ups production of British and English silks. Absolutely fascinating. So it can be an economic boost, but also it can say something. You know, you'd, you know, in the 18th century or early 19th century, you'd wear coats of particular colour or waistcoats with particular slogans embroidered on them and things. Uh, so, so clothes have always had something to say. People do try and make statements, um, and, but, but it is difficult. Um, it, but what I love is when someone has taken something they have bought off the peg and they adapt it, they do something, they sew on patches or they, you know, um, put safety pins in it, that sort of thing. And I'm like, oh, cool, you're making it yeah. your own through, through your own means and what you want to do as opposed to everyone should wear bespoke because that's just not practical. Um, one of the best things you can do is go to charity shops um, and, and buy things there because after all, think of what's being sold today think think what's on the market now what of that will be the vintage of tomorrow it's not well made enough it's going to fall apart exactly. before it gets exactly. anywhere mature. I, don't know. I got a vintage juicy couture 2010 jacket that I bought when I lived in New York and my nieces are wearing it now and they love it. I mean, I paid a lot for it 13 years ago, 14 years ago, but they are wearing it on Portobello Road now and they think it's really cool. I thought it was old. They think it's a vintage original Juicy. That's frightening, though. Juicy Couture, I remember like it was yesterday. How has that come back in and it's a thing? Like Y2K fashion, what? Yeah, this yeah. was a minute ago. <laughs> well, one thing we're seeing, especially through the, um, through the fast-paced nature of social media, especially with TikTok, making everyone's attention span about that big, um, trends are coming around that quickly because they can be cycled through very quickly because people can see it and it can go. Previously, trends have had to trickle and not everyone would see it. You see it in newspapers, some celebrities and this, but you can have trends go in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Um, you know, so so um, it, it really is that hype nature of things and that short attention span and that short form, very short form content and that and, and that desire for extreme immediacy more so than we've ever had. So so when I sometimes will tell people, you know, oh, you know, I'll take me this long to work on a garment or, or you know, if I'm talking to someone through the process, I've had people go, wow, that's a long time. Uh, mm, I'm not so sure about that. It's like, well, you know, if you're ordering a bespoke kitchen or, or a new car or something, it, it's never generally just immediate. People are so used to a click and buy situation and instant gratification um, rather than mine is kind of... Um, uh, sort of delayed gratification, really, where it's kind of like, oh, you know, it's the build-up and the excitement. And then you finally get the thing after fittings and everything. And what a much more fulfilling process, because after all, you've been wanting it then for a long period, rather than just going, oh, I want that, buy it, and then go, oh, I've got that now. Mm. You know, th there's a lot of, uh, I think, buyer's remorse um, with a lot of things that people buy. People will then go to such extremes and things where they talk about what goes into their body um, in terms of food, this, that, organic, blah, 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 but not give a damn about what goes on their back. And I'm like, don't try and separate the two. Um, you know, but because saying that, oh, I'm vegan, organic, and this and that, but then buying stuff that's been mass produced using harsh chemicals and effectively plastic, then it's like, ah, 
right, there's a bit of a double standard here. But it's also the big conversation that people That's aren't really... Yeah, but but it's one of the big conversations that people aren't really ready to have around sustainability around clothing um, and the fact that... Because we want everything and, and we don't want in any way as a society to not have access to the same things as everyone else. And we sort of do that mm-hmm. through clothing a lot of the time. Um, you know, certain celebrities and things you know, they, they put up this idea that you have to look like me in order to be cool. Um, you can't have the plastic surgery that I have had, but you can wear the clothes in a sort of way, and it's going to cost you this much, but you can get it from this place for cheaper. Um, fashion has always trickled down, but it's the fact that people are so far removed from the manufacturing process that they have no concept, no concept whatsoever about how something might be made or the material cost of something or the fact that a lot of the time their clothes are effectively being made by people under slave labor. Now listen, our um, our time together is is drawing to a close. I know we could go on for hours talking and we it's been great to talk to you but others may want to talk to you. Of course they can follow you on TikTok, on YouTube and on Instagram. But they may have a chance to meet you in Brighton at some point in the future. Do you want to talk a little bit about maybe the the, the ball? So I've organised, well I'm still organising, a, a Regency ball at Brighton Pavilion uh, in May this year. Uh, so 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 that's all uh, sold out and whatnot, and it's going really, really well. Uh, very, very excited for it, and hopefully it'll then springboard me to doing other things. But also, I want the place to sort of really come alive. And if you've never been to the Royal Pavilion, I highly suggest you go, because it is a unique building. There is nowhere like it in the world. It is a shock to the senses, it, and it really is phenomenal. Uh, it it's it's so hard to describe because it is so bizarre, but fantastic and just incredibly outrageous and quite camp. A lovely way in LGBTQ plus history month, uh, ending with camp. Uh, thank you so much for, <laughs> for chatting to us about uh, your love of period clothing, uh, your views on on fast fashion, which are absolutely fascinating. And the whole idea of, you know, thinking about what you wear and what you eat holistically. The concept also of just exploring your identity through fashion and um, being perhaps a little bit more colorful, being brave enough. Thank you so much, Zach. Just remind everyone, they want to find you on Instagram, TikTok or YouTube, where should they go? Uh, Basically just type in Pinsent Tailoring and you'll find me. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. We'll see you again, hopefully one day. Not at all, see you soon. Oh, that was fun, wasn't it? What a fantastic guest. I learned so much. His view of history and period clothing and then relating it to fast fashion today and that whole idea of, you know, what you eat and what you wear being connected. I was hooked. Yeah, me too. I could have gone on speaking to him for hours, literally. It was, yeah, yeah. Great mind he's got. Oh, nice. He's so nice. Yeah. I mean, just, I really, I can't, I, cannot, I cannot stress enough. You know, when I was a little, you know, when 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 the gay Aristo on Instagram and TikTok was really tiny, and I reached out to Zach, yeah. 
on Pinsent underscore tailoring. And he went, came straight back and was really supportive. And you can see that in the interview. He's just lovely and supportive and really kind and thoughtful. Yeah, lovely, warm guy. I wholeheartedly agree. We need to start a little fan club. <laughs> well, he's got one anyway. He's got thousands. Millions. Millions of people watch his stuff. But, but as well as a fabulous conversation, we always end with what did you learn from today? Well, my biggest takeaway, I think, from today's episode episode and from Zach is that notion of self-liberation and giving yourself permission to to express yourself in the way that you'd like and not be bogged down by you know oh I can't do this or I can't do that obviously within reason <laughs> nothing illegal mind but um yeah I you know I just loved that kind of if you want to wear this you can and that sense of he's, he mentioned delayed gratification, you know, working towards something, looking forward to something. So I just love those warm, nice feelings. That was. Yeah. And how about you? What did you take away from today? Uh, well, it's kind of on a similar a similar vein and a bit kind of flippant. But I learned that I can have cake for breakfast if I want it. You can. And don't forget to. We're adults. We can. <laughs> and I shall. Absolutely. And you shall. And we'd love to hear what our lovely listeners learned from that as well. And you can email us on lovehistorypodcasts at gmail.com to talk about Zach, to send us a question. If you send us a question, we'll read every single email. And you never know, we might read out your question in our next exciting episode. Make sure that you subscribe. You can follow me on at Gay Aristo on YouTube, Instagram and TikTok. Marie, how do they follow you? Well, I am Old Father Thames on the socials. On TikTok, I am Old Father Thames Mudlark. So just uh, you'll find me if you type in those words. Super. And make sure you subscribe to this podcast. You won't want to miss our next episode with a very exciting guest. See you soon.